Welcome to Zoinks, the podcast that explores creepy mysteries, spooky encounters, and all things strange and unusual. In 1943, four boys found the skeletal remains of a woman stuffed in a tree. But how did she get there? is a village of less than 8,000 people, but its history is long and its claim to fame a rather macabre one. The earliest evidence of a human presence in Hagley comes in the form of a Witchbury Ring, a large circular mound which is all that remains of a hill fort dating back to the Iron Age. It takes its name from its location on Witchbury Hill, a large hill that is home to a grove of 28 ancient yew trees. It's also home to the Witchbury Obelisk, a listed monument originally built as a family memorial in 1758 by Lord Littleton, who, around the same period, constructed the nearby Hagley Hall. Witchbury Hill has become a popular meeting spot for pagans, particularly around Sarwain, due to its yew grove. The witch in Witchbury, that's W-Y-C-H, has its roots in the Saxon kingdom of Hwicca and shares completely different etymological roots than the word witchcraft. The home phone is just a happy coincidence. Bizarrely, neither of these words has anything to do with the tree species witch elm, which traces its roots back to an old English word. And, coincidentally, Hagley Hall is home to a large witch elm tree, which brings us to the mystery that has haunted Hagley for 80 years. On April 18th, 1943, four teenage boys, Bob Farmer, Thomas Willets, Robert Hart, and Fred Payne, were hunting for small game and trespassing on the land of Lord Cobham, who now owned Hagley Hall. The boys came across the witch elm tree, which caught Farmer's attention when he saw a bird flying out of it and thought that it might be home to a nest from which they could swipe a couple of eggs. Farmer climbed the tree and peered inside into the hollow trunk where he saw not a nest but what looked to be an animal skull. When the boys retrieved the skull from the tree, they saw its teeth and tufts of brown hair stuck to the bone and it became clear that it wasn't an animal at all, but a human skull. The boys returned the skull to the tree and made a pact to never tell anybody what they'd seen. The pact was broken a few hours later when a nervous Willards confessed what happened to his parents, who alerted the police. Within the tree, police found an almost complete female skeleton, complete with fragments of clothing, a gold wedding ring, and a shoe. The only part of the skeleton missing, a hand, was ultimately found broken and scattered near the tree. A forensic examination revealed that the woman had likely been dead for at least 18 months, placing her death in or before October 1941. No cause of death could be predicted with certainty, but a piece of fabric found in her mouth suggested that she may have died of suffocation. The medical examiner, Professor James Webster, 
said that the body must have been placed in the tree while it was still warm, and he was clear in his belief that the woman had died as a result of murder. He suggested that she must have been killed nearby in order for the killer to move her to the tree before rigor mortis set in. Other details found from examination of the body were that the woman had brown hair, stood around five feet tall, had given birth to at least one child, and died in her mid-thirties. Police searched through many missing person reports and appealed to dentists all over the country for help in identifying the body, but their search would prove fruitless and the body in the tree would remain unidentified. The next development came in 1944 when two pieces of graffiti appeared in the Midlands, both within driving distance of Hagley Hall. The first read, who put Lubella down the witch elm? And the second, which police suspected was written by the same hand, read Hagley Woods Bella. This graffiti gave a name to the victim, but provided no other clues, and even the name was completely unverifiable. The only new theory came courtesy of Margaret Murray in 1945. Murray was, among many things, an anthropologist and folklorist who, in 1898, became the first female lecturer of archaeology in the United Kingdom. Murray wrote extensively about witchcraft, and her studies had a significant influence in the direction of modern paganism, earning herself the nickname the Grandmother of Wicca. It was this interest in the supernatural that drove Murray to put forward a theory that the so-called Bella was killed as part of some kind of occult ritual. This theory seems based solely on Bella's missing hand, and on Murray drawing a link between that and the Hand of Glory, a magical artifact said to possess the power to protect and control others. Precisely what connected these two things, other than the fact that Bella's hand may have been removed, is unclear. The Hand of Glory refers to an artifact created by severing the hand of a hanged man and pickling it. Often. The ritual requires fat from the body to be formed into a candle and placed in the hand. The hand was typically the left hand, unless it belonged to a man hanged for murder, in which case the hand that committed the crime would be removed and enchanted. Bella, as far as we're aware, was not a murderer, nor was she hanged. So why Murray considered her a good candidate for the Hand of Glory ritual is uncertain. Additionally, there is no evidence at all that the missing hand was intentionally removed from the body. In fact, Bella's corpse was shielded only by the trunk of the witch elm in which she lay, and was otherwise exposed to the elements. This clearly took a toll on the body, as it was completely skeletonized within 18 months. It's also possible that larger animals had been picking at the body, such as the bird that Bob Farmer chased away. And, as we covered in our last episode when discussing the severed feet of the Salish Sea, the feet and hands are relatively weak joints that become easily disarticulated from the body. It's really no surprise that after 18 months left to the elements, Bella's body would be missing a hand. But despite the complete lack of evidence, the witchcraft association created by Margaret Murray was macabre and interesting, and it caught on in the local community. The same year that Murray put forth this theory, a man named Charles Walton was murdered not too far away from Hagley in what some have described 
as a ritual killing. Walton was stabbed with his own pitchfork and left pinned to the ground with his throat cuts. It vaguely mirrored a murder in 1875 when Anne Tennant was killed with a pitchfork. It's rumoured that Tennant was killed as she was practising witchcraft. There is, however, absolutely nothing to back up the claims that either of these murders had anything to do with the occult, or that there was any connection whatsoever with Bella in the Witch Elm, and there's certainly no evidence to suggest that Murray was following a real thread of inquiry with her Hand of Glory theory. The next theory popped up in 1953, when Una Mossop told police that her ex-husband had confessed to her his involvement in the crime. According to Una, Jack Mossop had been drinking with a friend, known only by his surname, Van Ralt, when they met a woman at the local pub, who joined them and quickly became drunk to the point of passing out. Mossop and Van Ralt decided to teach her a lesson and play a prank, so they carried the woman out to the old witch elm and left her inside it, thinking she would soon wake up in this strange place and learn her lesson. Jack Mossop was reportedly tormented by nightmares in which a woman looked out at him from within a tree and was ultimately confined to a mental health facility where he died before Bella's body was discovered. Again, this theory relies on very little. In fact, there's nothing at all to back it up beside the testimony of Una Mossop, who parted with Jack on bad terms. The theory also fails to explain the fabric found in Bella's mouth. A theory that has gained a lot of attention in this case is that Bella was a German spy. This theory traces its roots back to anonymous tipster in 1953, who went only by the pseudonym Anna. Anna claimed that Bella was killed for knowing too much about a German spy ring. Two German spies had reportedly landed near Hagley by parachute in 1941 and belonged to this spy ring. According to Wilfred Byford Jones, a reporter to whom Anna had relayed this information, MI5 were able to verify some aspects of Anna's story, but were unable to find any trail back to Bella in the Witch Elm. This theory gained further traction, though, when MI5 declassified a file on a German spy named Josef Jacobs. Jacobs was born in Luxembourg in 1898 and served in the German infantry in the First World War. Not long after the Second World War broke out, Jacobs joined the intelligence department of the German army. It was in this role that Jacobs was sent to England on January 31st, 1941. He was flown from the Netherlands to Cambridgeshire with food supplies, 500 pounds British currency, radio transmitter, and forged identity papers. What Jacob's long-term goals were is unknown, as he was captured shortly after his arrival. Having parachuted from his plane, Jacob's broke his ankle on landing and was forced to seek help from two local farmers. Jacob's was apprehended, and it would later transpire that MI5 had already been aware of his impending arrival due to information provided by Welsh double agent Arthur Owens. On August 15th, 1941, Josef Jacobs was executed by firing squad at the Tower of London. He became the last person 
to be executed there. Among Jacob's possessions when he was captured was a picture of his lover, German actress Clara Bowerly, who had reportedly been hired as a spy due to her experience performing for several years in the West Midlands, which gave her the ability to speak English in a perfect Birmingham accent. According to Jacobs, Bowerly was due to fly over and meet him in England, but he was unsure if that trip would still be made when he failed to make radio contact after his arrest. For many years, the whereabouts of Clara Bowerly were unknown, and this fueled speculation that she did arrive in England and was murdered, ultimately becoming Bella in the Witch Helm. Despite many years of speculation, though, this story was officially debunked in 2016, when Clara Bowerly's death certificate was unearthed and revealed that she had died of veronal poisoning in Berlin on December 16th, 1941. Unfortunately, there has been little progress in this case for many decades now. There's been interest in using modern DNA technology to try to shed new light on the murder, but the whereabouts of Bella's remains are currently unknown. Upon the death of James Webster, who conducted the post-mortem examination, the remains were gifted to a fellow professor. Where they are now, or have been in the decades since, nobody knows. Ultimately, none of our theories adequately explain what happened to Bella, or who she might have been. And with the significant amount of time that has passed without new information coming to light, it seems likely that the case will never be solved, and will remain a mystery. The graffiti continues to appear to this day, in and around Hagley, always asking the question that will probably never be answered. Who put Bella in the witch elm? Weird. Science. You may have seen a story in the news recently about an 87-year-old man who passed away during an EEG. It's gained quite a bit of traction, as it's the first time anything like this has happened, and presents us with a glimpse of brain activity in the moments surrounding death, an irresistible story for everything from scientific magazines to lowbrow tabloids. And, indeed, these stories have really cut through most of the details on this case to get to the juiciest part. Scientists record man's thoughts at moments of death. Some even go so far as to report that the experiment is proof that we replay our memories and relive our lives at the moment of our death. A lot of these headlines struck me as sensationalist and made me doubt the paper's legitimacy. To be honest, the first thing that came to my mind when I stumbled across this story was Duncan McDougall's 21 grams experiment. You may have heard of this experiment, as it became widely known, despite its questionable methodology and unclear results, remaining a pop culture oddity, even over a hundred years after it was first carried out. MacDougall's hypothesis was that the human soul had some kind of mass significant enough to be measurable, and he hoped that by measuring the weight of patients at the exact moment they passed away, he would be able to see a difference in the before and after measurements, 
which he would interpret, of course, as the result of the soul leaving the body. So, in 1901, McDougall set to work and identified six patients who resided in nursing homes and whose deaths were likely approaching. Four of these patients were suffering from tuberculosis, one from diabetes, and the sixth patient's deteriorating health was from unspecified causes. These people were chosen specifically because their conditions caused exhaustion, which McDougall hoped would ensure that they would remain still during their final moments and not affect the readings with movement. As death approached, the patient's beds were placed on industrial scales and their weight monitored until the moment arrived. As a control, McDougall repeated the experiment with dogs, working under the assumption that dogs don't have souls and therefore the scales would remain unchanged. The results of this experiment are well known. McDougall found that humans lose around 21 grams of weight at the moment of death, a clear sign that the soul not only exists, but that it weighs approximately this amount. The study, however, was deeply flawed, and even the slightest scrutiny reveals it to be a little more than pseudoscience. Firstly, the results themselves are not particularly clear. While one patient did lose 21 grams at death, another lost weight only to gain it back moments later, two patients lost weight only to lose further weight after death had occurred, and two patients, 33% of the sample, were disregarded entirely by McDougall, the first because the scales were not adjusted correctly, and the second because they died while the scales were still being adjusted. Additionally, the specificity of 21 grams is redundant, because the scales that McDougall used were only accurate to within 5.6 grams. It's also worth noting that McDougall stated that he was unable to find any sick or dying dogs for his control groups, but it is known that the control experiments did take place, so it's likely that McDougall poisoned healthy dogs for the sake of his experiments. Fifteen dogs in total, died for the sake of the 21 grams experiment. Then, of course, we have to deal with the fact that the experiment has never been repeated, making any solid conclusions about the results impossible to draw. There have been some alternative explanations presented for McDougall's findings, such as the suggestion that as breathing ends, body temperature increases and perspiration in a patient's final moments may account for the loss of mass. That would be about a tablespoon of sweat lost in the final seconds of life, so it's not outside the realms of possibility. However, if you ask what I personally think, I think the answer is much more simple. A hack, through and through. The experiment is flawed to the point that it ought to be disregarded entirely and it has been by the scientific community. But even aside from the methodology, it's clear that McDougall went into this experiment with a clear idea of what he wanted to find, and I think he likely disregarded the two patients that weren't included in the results because they didn't conform to what he wanted to see, and he put his focus on the patient who lost 21 grams, probably the greatest loss, and because it most neatly fit his hypothesis. But ultimately, 
The experiment showed nothing. If it were repeated today, it would show the same thing. Zilch. But what about the 2022 study? The one that purports to show a patient reliving their final... But what about the 2022 study? The one that purports to show a patient reliving their life as they pass away. Well, the main points of the experiment are absolutely true. Although the interpretation that this was someone flashing back through their entire life as they passed away is perhaps a bit of a fanciful reading of the results. The patient, an 87-year-old man, was admitted to hospital after a fall. He suffered a bleed on his brain and was also known to suffer from epilepsy. After the patient was stabilized, a CT scan was conducted and the patient was administered anticonvulsants. Then, an EEG was performed, during which the patient suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. In accordance with his DNR order, doctors did not intervene and the man passed away. The EEG results therefore show brain waves recorded during the moments that the man passed away which is reportedly the first time any such data has been gathered. The EEG continued to record data for 30 seconds after the man's heart stopped beating, during which there was a drop in electrical activity for all types of brain waves. Gamma wave activity, however, decreased by a smaller amount than the other types of brain waves. Gamma waves have been known to be related to memory recall, Hence the conclusion that the man may have been reliving his memories in his final moments. All of that is true, but there are, of course, many problems with this study. First of all, the sample size of one is of course not representative of the general population. The man also had epilepsy, and he'd suffered a brain injury all of which might affect his brain activity and give the types of readings that a healthy brain would not give in the same scenario. In order to confirm any firm conclusions, the experiment would need to be repeated on a larger group of people, and given the circumstances it requires, that's unlikely to happen. Additionally, it's worth considering that it's not as simple as a link between gamma waves and memory recall as some media outlets seem to suggest. Gamma waves are also associated with other mental processes, such as attention and consciousness. And when it comes to memory, they tend to be associated with working memory. That is, remembering details about the task that you're in the middle of, or remembering a phone number while you write it down, rather than episodic memory from far in the past. And it's worth noting that gamma rays have been shown to increase during activities such as meditation, despite there being no memory reliving happening there. But perhaps that in itself can bring some comfort, as meditation often brings people a profound sense of peace. Maybe we don't see our lives flash before our eyes when we die, but perhaps this is a sign that what we do find is a profound sense of peace and of calm at the end. While mostly well known for the murder mystery that began on its grounds, Hagley Hall is also home to a bizarre and unique ghost story. The house was built between 1754 and 1760 by George Littleton, 
First Baron Littleton. George Littleton wore many hats in his life, including a year-long stint as Chancellor of the Exchequer, the third highest-ranking position in the British government. He died in 1773, bequeathing his title and Hagley Hall to his son, Thomas. Thomas Littleton was born in 1744, and throughout his life he gained a reputation for his debaucherous behaviour, racking up a huge gambling debt, which he paid off via a quick and convenient marriage, before running away to Paris with a barmaid. Littleton largely drifted around with no purpose or permanent home, until his father's death, when he returned to Britain to take his seat in the House of Lords, and took up residence at Hagley Hall. On November 24th, 1779, Littleton felt ill and retired to bed early. Later that night, Littleton had a visitation during which he would swear he was awake. Littleton heard the fluttering of wings, as if a bird were flying around the room, followed by soft footsteps approaching his bed. When he sat up to see what was happening, he was surprised to find a woman beside his bed, dressed entirely in white, with a small bird perched on her hand. The woman spoke to Littleton, warning him that his death was quickly approaching. When Littleton finally spoke, he asked how long he had left, and the spirit responded, Not three days, and you will depart at the hour of twelve. Littleton was not shy about telling this story to anyone who would listen. He was reportedly quite disturbed by the event, and at first tried to convince himself that he'd merely been dreaming, with his mood seeming to improve over the coming days. By November 27th, the fated day of the spectre's prophecy, Littleton was, by all accounts, his old self again, with his guests that evening reporting that he had high spirits. As the evening wore on though, and the clock approached twelve, his attitude began to change, as he became more and more agitated. In order to prevent Lord Littleton spiralling any further, his guests devised a clever conspiracy, in which they set all of the clocks in the house half an hour ahead, and set their own personal pocket watches to match. As midnight passed, Littleton's relief was evident. This mystery lady is not a true prophetess, he declared, when the clocks showed fifteen minutes past twelve, when the time, in reality, of course, was fifteen minutes to the hour. Relaxed and feeling as though his ordeal was behind him, Littleton decided it was time to retire to bed and sent his servant to retrieve his nightly medicine. As the servant was preparing the medicine, he heard unusual breathing in the next room and rushed back to check Littleton was all right. Other guests heard the same noises and rushed into the room, but they all arrived in time only to see Littleton die before their eyes. Exactly how much truth there is to this story is not entirely clear. It's true that Littleton passed away suddenly at the young age of 35, and the cause of death doesn't seem to be known. It's also true that documents at the time, from Littleton's friends and peers, do make mention of this strange experience and foretelling of his own death. How accurately these accounts relay what Littleton saw on the night of November 24th, however, we will never know for certain. 
An interesting postscript to this story comes courtesy of one of Littleton's closest personal friends, Mr. Andrews, who claimed to have seen Littleton standing by his bedside the night that he died. Assuming Littleton was playing a joke and taking it in good humour, Andrews rose and rang his servant's bell to order a room to be prepared for his unexpected guest. Looking around the room again, however, Andrews was confused to find that Littleton had vanished. When the servant arrived, Andrews asked whether he had seen Littleton. The servant said that he had not. And that was not a satisfying answer for Andrews, who was certain he had seen his friend just moments earlier. Knowing Littleton's sense of humour, and assuming that it was all part of a joke, Andrews dressed and searched the house for Littleton. But of course, he would not find him. At four o'clock the next day, Andrews still believed that he'd been the victim of some kind of prank when news reached him that Littleton had died the previous night. Was Andrews' visitation simply a product of his imagination? Or did Littleton, as he experienced the grim prophecy coming true, make a ghostly visit to his friend in his dying moments? That's everything we've got for you today, but we'll have another mystery for you in the next episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we have a whole website where we publish articles about all things spooky, from the supernatural to the unexplained. You can find that at daffodillies.co.uk slash zoinks. That's D-A-F-F-A-D-I-L-L-I-E-S dot co dot uk slash zoinks. Head over there now dive in and creep yourself out and be sure to join us in the comments and share your thoughts and theories if you want to get in touch you can also find us on twitter our handle is fearbyzoinks and you can always email us at zoinks at daffodillies.co.uk finally if you have a moment we'd love a rating and a review on whichever app you're getting your podcasts from it would really help us out until next time Stay spooky.